0: You would please turn with me in your copy of God's word to Micah 3. It's good to pick back up in Micah. I want to warn you from the start, my manuscript is a page longer than normal. And so if at one point you're like this seems longer than normal, I know that, but I'm very excited. I couldn't cut anything out. I'm just I'm so excited. I just I had to just keep preaching. So just just know that <laughs> from the start. Or if I'm talking a little faster at certain points, you'll, you'll know why. Uh, but we're going to be in Micah chapter 3, and, and I, want to, I want to open with an illustration of something I've been listening to uh, in a podcast. Uh, the podcast discusses the West Virginia coal mine industry, specifically in the, around the late 1800s, early 1900s, the, the turn of the century. Uh, the podcast is called Martyr Made. It's done by a man named Daryl Cooper. Um, if any of you have heard of Jocko Willink, uh, Daryl Cooper uh, does a podcast with, with Jocko. Jocko is a famous Navy SEAL motivational speaker. But uh, Daryl does some really interesting podcasts. And uh, speaking on the coal mine industry in, in West Virginia, he, he begins by talking about the Scotch-Irish immigrants who settled in Appalachia. Uh, these were families and communities where everyone subsisted off of hunting and fishing, and they had small family farms, and for the most part, they were left alone. No one wanted to go there. That is, until it was discovered that the mountains were loaded with coal. And at that point in our country's history, everything ran off of Coal, power plants, trains, even the ships of the U.S. Navy were all coal-powered. And what happened was that in a very short period of time, large out-of-state corporations began buying up as much land as possible. Names you'll know, like Carnegie and J.P. Morgan, names like that would come in and buy up tens of thousands of acres And while there was lots of money to be made, many of the West Virginians made nothing. There are instances where landowners were cheated out of family land. Landowners who couldn't read because they'd lived in the mountains their entire life. And so someone comes to them with a contract that they don't know and understand, and they're used to just making a handshake deal many found out that they'd been cheated. And as these companies would move in, they would decimate the landscape. Streams would be overfished. Forests would be cleared for timber. Wild game would be driven away. And as a result, the original residents of West Virginia really had two options. They could uproot their families and take what they had and move elsewhere. Or they could go work in the mines. And again, this region is still today very rural. Still today is very underdeveloped. Imagine what it was at the turn of the century. And when these companies came in, they would build towns. And the company owned everything. We understand. When we step on Walmart's property, Walmart owns the parking lot. They own the building. We live by Walmart's rules when we're in Walmart. Well, what if Walmart owned 300,000 acres? These companies owned everything. At one point, if you put all of the coal companies together, they owned more land than Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Delaware combined. That was company property. They owned everything. They owned the roads so they could control ingress and egress. They owned the homes where their workers lived and rent was simply taken out of the paycheck. They owned the stores where the workers would buy the picks and helmets used in the mines. The picks and helmets weren't provided. They had to buy their own at the company store. There were times when workers would receive a pay raise, and this would be a boost in morale, until they went to the company store and saw that, all the prices in the company store also went up. The company would build and own their own schools and churches and police forces. The teachers, the preachers, the police, all worked for the coal companies and at times would report back, were expected to report back to the company if there was any talk or buzz of discontent or unionizing. The police would guard the train stations. If any coal union representative showed up, they would be questioned, beaten, and then put back on the train. If a miner did anything to displease the coal company, he'd lose his job, his home, he'd be blacklisted so he couldn't work for any other coal companies, and he and his family would be left utterly destitute and would have to leave the area in hopes of finding work elsewhere. But the coal companies grew exceedingly wealthy. While those West Virginians... Slaved away in terrible living and working conditions. Now, I'm not going to stand before you and claim that the Scotch-Irish residents of West Virginia had built the idyllic utopia. They were fallen humans as well. There was sin in their lives. They also had a need for the cleansing blood of Jesus. But it's hard for me to listen to their story and not feel great pity and sympathy for them. Men and women, whole families and communities that were crushed by the greed of -of out-of-state interests. Men and women who had to live in a company town where their home, their roads, their law enforcement, their schools, even their churches were owned bought and paid for by the company, and would tow the company line. You know, I open with that because I think it's a helpful picture of what we see in today's text. Micah has been sent to bring an indictment against God's people because of their wickedness, and today, specifically, their greed. And there are three particular groups targeted in this chapter— There are the rulers, the prophets, and the priests of Jerusalem. And we see the particular sins of these particular people named. There were the rulers. These were the political, the civic leaders, the the judges, the magistrates. Those people whose names were on uh, campaign signs in the yards all over Jerusalem. They were the prophets, uh, those men who supposedly brought the words of God to his people. They were the wise individuals who spoke of what the future held for God's people. They were trusted voices, religious voices. But they were bought and paid for by the rulers. They said whatever they were paid to say. And third, you have the priests, the men who served day in and day out in the temple, supposedly ministering to the people of God, men who had office hours at the temple, men who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people, men who taught God's word and were supposed to provide spiritual care. But they too were owned by the company, they were owned by the rulers. And they said and did what the rulers wanted them to say and do, and they were well compensated for it. And what was the result? Well, we're going to read about it. The people were crushed. The people were led astray. The people were cannibalized by the devouring state. The rulers and prophets and priests grew more and more wealthy, more and more bloated by their wicked pursuit of as much money and power as possible, while those that they were supposed to serve were afflicted and abused. They were harmed. And as we will see, the God that these three three officers supposedly served, he would not be mocked. And so he sends a true prophet, Micah, to name their sin and speak of the divine judgment that was coming for them. We're going to see that in just a moment. But first, let's pray together. Father God, as we open your word, we remember That it is firmly fixed in the heavens. And that when your son came and taught, he did not come to do away with one comma or period, but to fulfill it. Father, we also remember that you have chosen the foolish things... In this world to shame the wise. You've chosen the foolishness of preaching. The foolishness of someone like myself standing up and opening the word before your people. That is the way you have chosen. To speak to your people. To grow them. By the Spirit speaking through your word. Would you do that this morning? in Jesus name. Amen. Micah chapter 3. We'll read the entirety of the chapter. And I said, "Here, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones?" Who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. They will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who led my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no one, no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this. You heads of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice, who make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord In the midst of us, no disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever So we have these three groups, the rulers, the prophets, and the priests. And this morning we'll begin with the rulers. And notice from the start that these aren't simply named as magistrates or judges or civil servants of such and such a city. These are the rulers of the holy nation of Israel. These are the board of supervisors of God's people, the judges of the children of Abraham. Which meant that they weren't called to govern and judge the people in whatever way seemed best to them. They were called to govern and judge the people in the way that seemed best to God. To uphold his constitution, not their own. And Micah begins by asking a question. Is it not for you to know justice? You are the judges. Shouldn't you have a firm grasp on what righteousness and justice looks like? But they obviously don't. I mean, that's what Micah's question insinuates. You are the rulers of the holy city. Shouldn't your judgments and your rulings Should't your statutes follow the statutes of the God who set Jerusalem apart? I mean, of course they should. But they didn't, which is why Micah is here and speaking to them. Real quickly, I'd just like to remind all of us the source of true justice. Where is true justice grounded? In human wisdom? In the theoretical opinions of the Ivy League alumni? In current societal opinions and trends? Where is true justice grounded? One place. In what God Almighty has said. Deuteronomy 32, 4 states, The rock, His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. He's the reference point. That should have been their plumb line. I want to do justice. What has God said? What are the statutes, the rules, the commandments that he has revealed? This is just as applicable applicable for us today. The character of God never changes. If we want to know about justice. What has God said? I'm reminded of the words of the 16th century monk Martin Luther, who is being compelled by the rulers of his day to do what the rulers declared to be right and just and true. What did Luther say? He said, I consider myself convicted By the testimony of the Holy Scriptures. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. These rulers weren't following the revealed will of God, they were following their own greedy desires, and it led to the destruction of those under their rule. You know, earlier in the sermon, just before my prayer, I, I made the statement that these rulers were cannibalizing their people. The devouring state was being bloated by her own citizens. And this wasn't hyperbolic language on my part, it's Micah's language. You see it in verses 2 and 3 You who hate the good and love the evil. Who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones? Who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? I know some of you are hunters. And on a good day, you'll be out in the woods, you shoot a deer. You drag it back home where you skin it and gut it and process it and then cook it and eat it and enjoy it. Now, no judgment against you hunters. That's a picture of what these rulers are doing to God's people. It's brutal. Now, they aren't literally eating each other. That will come. Years down the road, when Jerusalem is besieged and starvation sets in, cannibalism does come. They aren't literally eating each other here, though. But the image is of a ruler's callous indifference to human suffering. Their people are being exploited by them. But we're told that judgment will come. The day of retribution will come. At the time of the Lord's determination, it will overtake them. In verse 4, Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Those rulers didn't listen to the cries of those seeking help and relief and justice. And so guess what? When it's their turn to cry for help and relief, they will not be heard. You see, their punishment fits their crime. On to the second group, the prophets. Verse 5 Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Notice how they lead God's people astray? By favoring those who feed them. You give these men gifts and money and status, and they'd say exactly what you wanted to hear. They'd cry, peace be upon you, brother. But this isn't just an absence of war and strife. It's more than that. They're, they're declaring an absence of God's judgment. You pay these men and they would cry out to you, good sir, you are right with the Lord. Surely he will bless you. What a holy and righteous. Patron you are. No need for you to worry. But if you didn't line their pockets, maybe you didn't because you couldn't, because you yourself were impoverished. Maybe you didn't because of of moral convictions. But if you didn't line their pockets, they'd declare war against you. This could actually be translated, they sanctify war against you. You don't pay them, and they say, this man is an enemy of God. He's accursed, an infidel, someone unworthy of protection or respect. They would launch a holy crusade against you. And it's ugly, ugly stuff. Micah tells us he is not like this. He was a true prophet. In verse 8, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sin. Now this is not Micah. Don't think for a second. This is Micah being full of himself and boasting. He's simply describing a true prophet of God. Micah named sin, not because the people hadn't paid him, but because he'd been filled with the Spirit of God. But again, we see judgment would come on these prophets. And listen to the images of darkness and disaster. These men who were supposed to be enlightened. These men who had foresight and could see into the future. Listen, therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. Again, judgment is coming for you, prophets, and you will be cut off from the God you claim to speak for. Then on to our final group the priests. There's not as much said about them here, but I think a lot of what we've already said could be repeated for them. We're told in verse 11 that the priests teach for a price. Again, very similar to the prophets. We're told that the rulers render judgment for a bribe. You pay the rulers, they'll give you the outcome in court you want. Then the priests Teach for a price. The prophets prophesy for money. All of them motivated by greed. Now, as far as paying priests, elsewhere in Scripture, it is clear that the priests were to be compensated for their labors. Uh, They did not have the inheritance that the other tribes had. Uh, The tribe of Levi was not given and inheritance as the others. And so the others uh, provided for the needs of the Levites. Uh, These priests were the oxen that were not to be muzzled while they were treading out the grain. They ministered in the tabernacle, in the temple, and God's people provided for their needs as you so graciously do for me and my family. But that's not the issue. The issue here is that the priests were supposed to teach God's word, but this is something they would only do if you paid them. Give me something and I'll tell you what you want to hear, but don't pay me and I'll despise you. I want you to imagine coming to me and saying, John, I've got a family member who's having surgery. I wonder if you could pray for us and Come visit us in the hospital. Uh, Imagine if I looked at you and said, Slip me a $100 bill and I'll do it. Uh, Imagine if your access to this table was based off of you slipping me a $100 bill. Imagine if the office of elder and deacon could just simply be bought. That's the picture of what's going on and it is sickening. And Micah tells us that all three of these groups they are clueless. They lean on the Lord and say, "Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster will come upon us." Micah, what are you talking about? We are God's people. He will always protect us. He won't let anything bad happen to us. But they're deluded. Micah says, disaster is coming for you because of your sins. Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. God has left the building. He has left you. And this place where you feel so safe and secure will be devastated. Now, what do we do with this? You know, normally in the prophets, we see this in Micah, there's a pattern. There's the naming of sin, there's the proclamation of judgment, and then there's a promise of hope and blessing. We've got two out of the three here. We'll have to wait for the third until we get to chapter 4 and chapter 5. But it's important for us not to skim over God's judgment of sin. Again, God will not be mocked. Justice will be done. Sin will be punished. Sin is dangerous. It sends men and women to hell. It must be taken deadly seriously. It must be repented of. We must give it no quarter and flee from it. Because those who hate the good and love the evil and die in that state are eternally lost. Those who make crooked what is straight and never repent will be eternally lost. Those who are consumed with greed and love of money more than love of God and neighbor, if they do not turn, they will be eternally lost. Beyond death, they will find darkness day shall be black over them. They will be put to shame. They will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them because of their evil deeds. We read a passage like this and we must consider, am I among their number? I pray for the blessed Conviction of sin. I pray that all of you would not be deluded and believe that you have peace with God if you are secretly harboring a greed that is more dear to you than God and to his people. Repent while you can. Turn while you can. Flee while you can. Cast your sin away and run for help and safety to the Lord Jesus while you can. You know, he's here. He's in this text. We've been talking about rulers and prophets and priests. These mediators. These people who are supposed to stand between the people and God. These people who are supposed to represent God to the people and represent the people before God. But they failed. They were unfaithful. They did what was evil. But there is good news, Christian, that where they failed, there is another who triumphed. There is one who faithfully represents God to us and us before God. You know, I hope that my saying, ruler, prophet, priest, ruler, prophet, priest, reminds you of someone. I hope that it jumps off the page at you, that a light bulb goes off in your mind and you say, that's Christ. Those are his offices. You know, if you hang around Presbyterians long enough, we're just like parrots. will say, prophet, priest, king, prophet, priest, king. We're saying it all the time. But that's who, that's who he is. It's who we believe him to be. In chapter 8 of the Westminster Confession of Faith states this It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king. Jesus wasn't just some Moral teacher, or someone fighting against the empire, sticking it to the man, or some activist of nonviolent resistance. He is our prophet, priest, and king. These offices describe what he has done and what he continues to do today, and in them we see good news. We'll start with prophet. It is good news that Christ is our prophet. Because you and I are blind and ignorant. On our own, we don't know and we can't know how we gain peace with God. We try to save ourselves. We think that if we're better than the next person, that'll be enough. We think that if we just try hard and our good outweighs our bad, then we'll be accepted. We are completely ignorant, and go looking elsewhere for salvation. We foolishly think, somewhere out there in the turbulent waters, apart from the ark of Christ, I I think I might find another way to be saved. But as our prophet, he has revealed salvation to us. As Charles Wesley wrote, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. That is what our prophet has done, and we need him. We desperately need a prophet who will tell us how we might be saved. And the answer, by the way, is that we believe in him. We trust in him. We receive him. We rest upon him alone for our salvation. We need a prophet who makes the only God known to us. And that is exactly what Jesus has done and continues to do today. But he's also our priest. It's good news that Christ is our priest because you and I are guilty. We are guilty before a holy God. Do you know it? You desperately need a priest to stand between you and the holy God. A priest who doesn't take payment for his ministry, but instead gave himself, gave his life as a sacrifice so that your sin might be atoned for. The book of Hebrews tells that Christ is our merciful and faithful high priest who has made propitiation, suffered the wrath of God for the sins of the people. He is the one who satisfied divine justice for all who believe. He is the one who reconciles you before God. He is the one right now who is interceding for his church before the Father. And to quote Charles Wesley again, We, as the church, can say, arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. He is our great high priest. And Hebrews 7 tells us that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And then finally, what's the last one? Prophet, priest, king. It's good news that Christ is our king because apart from him, we are in bondage to Satan, sin, and death. In his final words in Matthew's gospel, he assures us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Meaning that there is no enemy that can conquer Christ. There is no enemy that can enslave and prevail over his church. And there's so much more that could be said of Christ as king. I know I'm getting probably close to my time already. There's one thing I could not miss. There's one final thing that is found in this text and is especially, especially appropriate as we come to this table. I want you to see what I consider the most profound and overwhelming difference between King Jesus and the kings and rulers in Micah 3. What were they doing? They were cannibalizing their people. The devouring mother state, growing bloated off the exploitation of her own subjects, they tore the skin and flesh off the people of God. They ate their flesh and flayed their skin and chopped them up like meat in a pot. But what of Christ? What would the king of kings do? The exact opposite. He would invite all those who believe to come and eat of him. He says in John 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is, to drink, is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It seems like a good time in the sermon to find a quote from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He commented on this passage saying, quote, It is a very beautiful And simple metaphor, when understood to refer spiritually to the person of our Lord, eating is the taking into yourself of something which exists externally, which you receive into yourself, and which becomes a part of yourself, and helps to build you up and sustain you. That something supplies a great need of your nature. And when you receive it, it nourishes your life. That is the essence of the metaphor, and it well describes the act and the result of faith. End quote. Our king doesn't devour his own, he freely gives of himself. His skin and his flesh was torn and flayed. His blood was shed so that his people would live, so that his people would find sustenance and strength and grow. He is our prophet, priest, and king, and where all others have failed. He is victorious. You know, we began by talking about the company towns in West Virginia, and I want to end by saying that there is no safer place to be. There is no more joyous place to be than to be under the care of and in the service of Jesus Christ. He truly owns all. And our comfort in life and in death is that we belong to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it speaks of your son. How every page testifies of him. Father, would we find great comfort remembering the truth that Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. He is the one who brings us your word and shows us salvation. He is the one who stands between us and you, between a sinner and a holy God. He's the one who represents you to us and us to you. And Father, he is our king, our victorious Lord to whom everything belongs, and to whom all power and all glory has been given. Father, may we find great encouragement and joy in our service to him. We ask this in his name. Amen.